Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the John Campia Show here on my podcast channel. We'll talk about that in just a second. My name, of course, is John Campia, and it is an honor and privilege to have each and every one of you, our international friends, our film-loving brothers and sisters, gathered together as we talk about our favorite things in the world, movies, movie news, TV, and streaming, and all sorts of good stuff. And uh, as I mentioned, today it's a podcast. Now, for those of you who normally just listen to the John Campia Show on the podcast feed, uh, this is just another day. But for those of you who normally watch us on YouTube, yeah, the show isn't going on YouTube today. It's coming on the podcast feed. Now, here's a little bit of background why. Um, So this morning, I was doing my regular routine, right? I was getting all the notes finalized, all my kind of data put together. I was getting my layout done on all my screens. And then I started to fire up all the gear. And for whatever reason... My video capture card uh, is deciding it's on strike with the IATSE, apparently. My video card has decided to go on strike uh, as well and not work. And I just couldn't figure out. I mean, there's a bunch of things I can do to try to fix it, but it's going to take time. And, you know, the show was supposed to start in just a bit. So I decided instead of canceling the show altogether that I would just record it in audio format and and put it up as a podcast today. So that is what we're going to be doing today. So thank you guys all for coming on over. Now, here's how today's show is going to go. It's kind of a normal show, but we really only have one main topic we're going to talk about today because it's kind of a big one. And then we're going to be going over to take your live comments and questions that you guys have been sending in via the tip link. If you want to know how to send in a comment or question that gets read on the show, if it's appropriate for the show, just go down into the description of this podcast or, you know, normally on one of our videos and you'll see a tip link. Just click on that. And or you can enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question on one of our shows, if it's, of course, appropriate for our shows. And, of course, you're supporting our channel at the same time. And all of us involved here at the John Campia Show, thank you guys very, very much for your support. Okay, guys. With that down, let's get into this main topic here today. And, and I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, on the beginning of this, because we're going to be talking about the Bob Chapek and Bob Iger drama going on over at Disney. And as I've titled this podcast today, uh, how Disney is losing the battle for itself. It's losing the battle for its own identity. Now, I want to acknowledge something before we move forward with this. I always tell aspiring podcasters, bloggers, or YouTubers the number one piece of advice I always give them is be known for what you love. Don't become known for what you hate, right? Always make sure as you look over all your content, be it written content on a blog or audio content on a podcast or video content on a YouTube channel. I always say that if people look at, you know, bring up your, your big list of content, are they going to see you doing stuff about things you hate hate, hate, hate with the odd positive thing thrown in there? Or are they going to look at your big list of content and see, wow, this person loves a lot of things. And obviously every once in a while they dislike something. And I want to acknowledge that I have been putting out a number of pieces of content lately that have been negative regarding the Disney CEO, Bob Chapek. I want to acknowledge that. Now, when I pull up my YouTube channel, I go to my videos list 
I'm still like 15 positive pieces for every one negative piece I put up. I mean, so I feel pretty good about that. But I do want to acknowledge right off the top here that I myself am even a little bit uncomfortable with how much negative coverage I've been giving Bob Chapek. Now, I was one of these guys that I thought Bob Chapek was a logical choice to succeed Bob Iger. I was, um, I celebrated when they announced his hiring. I was all for it. But as time has progressed and we've seen him do more and more things, I've really not, as one individual and as one individual only, I've really not liked the way that he has been running this company or how badly he's been running the company. And, and I've had a lot of concerns and I've made content about those concerns. So I do want to acknowledge that as the guy who always says, be known for what you love, not for what you hate. I want to acknowledge that we've had a number of pieces about Bob Chapek, but because Disney is, I think we would all agree whether you like Disney or you don't like Disney. I think all of us would agree that Disney is the most important you know, media, media company out there. Like when it comes to the stuff that we as audiences view and enjoy, like they're the guys with Pixar and Disney animation and Lucasfilm and the MCU. I mean, they're the important company out there. And for a lot of us, myself included, we're very big fans of their content. And so when you start talking about the new CEO, the new boss and how they are, or are not steering that company, while I confess and acknowledge that I've done more pieces of content about this than I normally would, I would also defend that decision by saying, this is a very, very important topic when it comes to those of us who are fans of movies and TV shows and all the stuff that we love. I think this is a very, very important topic. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about this today. Now, the reason this whole Bob Chapek thing is coming up again today is because yesterday, The Hollywood Reporter put out a really incredible long piece called Bob Iger's Long Goodbye. And the subcaption on the article is, 18 months into media's most consequential transition, Disney's respected ex-CEO Bob Iger lingers while successor Bob Chapek provokes anxiety as he moves aggressively to reshape the Magic Kingdom. And I had a number of you guys, when this article dropped online, fire me off a link to it, including some buddies of mine, including Robert Meyer Burnett. Like it's the moment this article dropped, he fired me off a link to it. And it came into me just before we started yesterday's John Campia show, but it was a little too late for us to, like we were just getting ready to start the show. It was a little bit too late. But as I started reading this article in depth, I thought it would be really beneficial for us as a fan community to kind of go through the Hollywood Reporter's really well done article here. It was written by Kim Masters, by the way, who always does a really good job over there. Um, and I thought we would just take a moment here and take a look at this thing. Okay, so as we dive into it here, the at the main heart of the issue, at least what appears to be at the main heart of the issue, is the big distinguishing factor between the leadership of Bob Iger and Bob Chapek is that Bob Iger heavily favors creativity and creatives and innovation. Creativity, creatives, and innovation. Bob Chapek is more of a business person who relies on data-driven decisions. And listen, in life, 
there is a time and a place for both of those worldviews. There, there really is. The question becomes, which approach is best for being the head and steering a company like Disney moving forward? Is it an approach of database decision-making and business, or is it creativity, creatives, and innovation? And that's really at the heart of this article and what this thing is given at. So let's dive in there. I'm not going to read the article at length, obviously, because it's quite long, but there are some excerpts here that I want to read through, including the introduction. The first few paragraphs from the introduction, I think, set the stage very well. So let's dive into this here. So this comes to us again from The Hollywood Reporter. In June, Disney's board and top management flew the company's uh, flew to the company's uh, Aulani Resort in Hawaii for their annual retreat. It was executive chairman Bob Iger's last official appearance at such a gathering. Now, remember, Bob Iger is no longer the CEO of Disney, but he, as of right now, at least for a little while longer, he is still the executive chairman of the company. So that's why he's there. At any rate. Bob Iger's last appearance at such a gathering. With retirement looming, former theme parks and resorts chief Bob Chapek had already taken the reins as CEO in February of 2020. This was the first time in 15 years that Bob Iger would not be presiding over the meeting. Iger decided to open the meeting by offering his parting advice. Now listen to this. This this gets pretty interesting here. A longtime critic of over-reliance on market research rather than instinct and taste, he made an inspirational plea for the value of talent. He touched on the challenges of managing creators, but stressed that every transaction at Disney, parks, consumer products, movies, and television starts with creativity. So the article really starts off here, really setting that, that groundwork that we were talking about as we started, right? Understanding the creative approach, the the leadership approach of a Bob Iger, the outgoing leader who believes in creativity. You shouldn't rely on market research. You don't make your decisions based on data-driven, you know, uh, analysis. You know, you got to go on instinct. You got to go on taste. You got to rely on creativity. You got to rely on innovation. That's been his approach. And Uh, Just a couple of months ago in June at his final retreat, at his final Disney leadership retreat, he was really impassionately trying to pass that on, that this is something you guys need to continue to do. You know, everything has to start with creativity. Okay, let's go back into the article here. In a world and business that is awash with data, it is tempting to use that data to answer all of our questions, including creative questions, Bob Iger said. I urge all of you not to do that. If Disney had relied too heavily on data, he noted, the company might never have made big breakthrough movies like Black Panther, Coco, and Shang-Chi at the Legends of the Ten Rings. So what Bob Iger is basically saying here is like, look, a lot of the most successful things we have ever done has not come as a result of market research. Now, listen, notice that Bob Iger isn't saying that market research is useless, nor is Bob Iger saying that data should be just inconsequential and not acknowledged. These are important tools. Of course, market research and data analysis are important tools for any business, of course, but are they your North Star? Are they your guiding principle or is innovation, creativity, 
and talented people or creatives, is that your North Star? Of course, you incorporate market research. Of course, you incorporate data analysis. Obviously, you do. But what's your North Star? And listen, I really like the fact that one of the things that Bob Iger pointed out here was just look at recent successes. Coco, Black Panther, Shang-Chi. These are all massive successes, but there have been many, many others where data, if they were, if Bob Iger had used data and, and market research as his guiding principle, those projects would never have been made. They never would have been made. And I'll tell you why, on a, if I can get personal with you guys, I'll tell you why that that resonates with me so much. Okay. Now I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. You guys might be able to put two and two together, but I'm I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, but I was in a situation where the leadership, I mean, I was leadership, but the people over me, you know, were very, very much data driven. And when you become data driven and market research, ultimately what that leads you to being is a reactionary organization. Being market research and data-driven makes you a reactionary organization. Now, there are many, many, many fields in which being a good, tight, sharp, smart, reactionary organization is the absolute right way to go. It's the absolute right nature for you to be. But there are other types of industries that it's not such a good thing for. So, like, I was in this organization, and, like, I kept getting, you know, notes from those who were above me about, well, you know, this is popular, and this is popular, and this is popular. So do more things that are, like, aligned with what is popular. And, of course, the problem with that is, by the time you jump on board popular trends, they're normally on the downslide, right? By the time you realize something is popular and then you try to mimic what is already popular, you are no longer innovative and you're behind the curve. And like for me personally, if I, if I can speak a little bit to this, back when I started the movie blog audio edition, it was the world's first movie-related podcast. It was the first one ever done in the world. You know, if I relied on market research and data analysis to tell me what should I do with the movie blog next, it would just say, do these types of popular posts, do top 10 posts, do, you know, these sorts of posts, because these are things that were already existing. There never would have been innovation. If, you know, when I was at AMC, if we relied on market research and, you know, data analysis for what should we do next with AMC movie news, what should we do? We never would have been able to create movie talk because nobody was doing it, right? There was no market analysis. There was no examples out there. There was no uh, precedence out there for data analysis to be done that says, well, this is, you know, we should do this video show because it didn't exist. We had to innovate and be, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We had to be trailblazers in many ways to be the first ones to do it. And of course, movie talk, both in its AMC form and in its collider form, were incredibly successful. The most successful shows of its type ever. And everybody else then rushed to copy us. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I said that as if that's a negative thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Data-driven information would tell them, hey, 
AMC is doing this and it's working really well. You should do it too. So that's what they did. But if we relied on market research and if we relied on data analysis for what we were going to do with AMC movie news, we never would have done movie talk. It never would have happened because being data driven. And again, this is going to be something I repeat about eight times during this podcast, being data driven and being focused on market research means you're never going to be innovative and you're never going to be trailblazing and you're never going to break new ground. The market research and the data told them that black superhero movies don't do well. That's, I mean, no, don't blame any person for that. That was just what the data said, right? But Kevin Feige and Bob Iger knew better. They knew that we have the creativity. We have the innovation. We're going to do this. Data-driven stuff never would have let Shang-Chi and the Legends of the Ten Rings be made. Never would have let them be made. Because there's no data to support it. Data-driven focus is the enemy of innovation. Notice I'm not saying data is the enemy of innovation. It's not. But data-driven focus where that's your North Star, is the enemy of innovation. And there are many, many other examples of this throughout Bob Iger's leadership. And that's just why that worked. Now, let's jump back over here to that Hollywood Reporter article. Uh, Though no outsiders were present, chatter about Bob Iger's talk soon began to seep through Hollywood. His words were interpreted as a direct shot at Bob Chapek. Though a 28-year Disney veteran who most recently had overseen the theme parks and resorts, Chapek was an outsider in Hollywood, known for cutting costs and raising prices. He was regarded as many with distrust, if not outright hostility. So the version of the board retreat that made the rounds had Iger showing up Bob Chapek, who is said to have followed Iger's remarks by declaring in blunt terms that, in fact, Disney was now a data-driven company. And it sent a chill through Hollywood. Now, the article then goes on to say that some people at the meeting said, well, you know, he didn't, Bob Chapek didn't directly come up and right in Bob Iger's face said, well, too bad. We're now a data-driven company. But the article does go on to says, they say that he was merely, Bob Chapek was merely being himself, a numbers-orientated, bottom-line-focused businessman, lacking creative experience, and without Iger's polish and flair. Nonetheless, The leadership retreat anecdote uh, dovetailed with a narrative that was already being held among many Bob Iger confidants that Bob Iger had lost faith in Bob Chapek and that his speech before the board was a final warning that Disney was veering off course. This is coming from Bob Iger, that Disney was now veering off course. And the idea of the wrong man at the helm of Disney stokes a lot of anxiety in an industry that has seen Fox and MGM swallowed up. Warner Media battered by AT&T and Paramount now transforming into nothing but a shadow of its former self. And as we skip down to another paragraph here, we start to see already some of the immediate results of that change in ideology, a shift from an ideology of creativity, creatives and innovation to an ideology of market research and data. It says this in the in the article. Chapek declined to comment on the process, but even as Bob Iger lingered, Bob Chapek moved quickly to seize control, reorganizing the company in a way that diminished the power of some key Iger lieutenants as others have exited. 
Then one executive said, every creative person is leaving or losing power, laments one of the former high-level Disney executives. This is the type of fallout that average people like me become very afraid of, very aware of and very afraid of that once you get somebody coming in who's like this, who's like, screw the creatives, screw innovation, we're going to be about market research and data. What that automatically means is the creatives become demoted. The creatives become demoted. And you start to have people who have nothing to do with creativity being put in charge of areas that were once led by creatives, that was once led by innovators. And that's highlighted here again by the by the anonymous Disney executive who told The Hollywood Reporter, every creative person is leaving or losing power. They're all leaving or losing power. And here's a great example of that. We jump down to another paragraph in this article where it writes, there has been signs of tension within Disney as well. In April, the insider reported that Pixar's Pete Doctor, now he's the guy who took over Pixar after John Lasseter left. So Pete Doctor has been with Pixar a long time. He's a creative genius. He's done a great job running that company since John Lasseter left. Anyway, in April, the insider reported that Pixar's Pete Doctor was unhappy with the decision to skip theatrical and put the movie Soul on the Disney Plus service in December of 2020. Animators were, were said to be dismayed when Disney then put Luca directly onto the streamer, both for no extra charge. Soul, by the way, went on to win the Oscar for Best Animated Feature, eligible to compete only because of pandemic rules. So as a result of this shift in ideology from Bob Iger's shift of focus of the creative creatives and innovation to Bob Chapek's market research and data, a major creative like Pete Doctor, the head of Pixar, no longer had a say in where his movies were going. He no longer had a say. He's the head of Pixar. But the data people were now in charge. And the data people wanted his movie not where he wanted it to go. They wanted it on Disney+. Plus. The message this sends to all other creative people within Disney is this. You don't matter. You don't matter. It doesn't matter what you think about the creative process. It doesn't matter what you think is the content that should be made. And it doesn't matter what you think where the content should go once it's made. These are no longer your decisions. These decisions are now going to be made by data analysts, not you. And they're already starting to alienate people like a really valuable guy like Pete Doctor, and you have to know that it's going to be affecting others as well. And here's really the ultimate expression of that. As you go down near the bottom of the article, The Hollywood Reporter writes, in October of 2020, Bob Chapek announced a major reorganization that continues to be opaque to many of the industry and even on Wall Street. It effectively moved the power. Listen to this. Guys, this is so important. Listen to this. It effectively moved the power of the purse from Bob Iger's creative executive team to Kareem Daniel, a longtime Chapek subordinate who has no more creative experience than Bob Chapek does. You can't blame Chapek for doing that, says Hal Vogel of Vogel Capital Management. He had to make his own imprint on the company pretty quickly, or he would not have been effective or respected. 
I think he had to make a move that was for as forceful as he could. Now, Disney is witnessing a broad changing of the guard with general counsel Alan Braveman, studio executive Alan Horn, and communication chief uh, Zenia Mucha among those who have departed or are on their way out. But again, back to that main thing. Bob Chapek, one of the first things he did was get rid of the creative executives and got rid of them and gave all of their power to another guy who knows nothing about creativity, but he's been a longtime subordinate to Bob Chapek and gave it to him. And, and by the way, I don't know Kareem Daniel. I've never met Kareem Daniel. For all I know, he's the greatest guy in the world. I'm sure he's probably a very smart guy. But when you take all the power of the creatives and say, now I'm going to give it to a guy who has nothing to do with creativity, he's a data guy, it sends absolute shivers and chills throughout everybody else, particularly the creatives at the company. Now, of course, the most important creative at Disney right now, I think most people would agree, is Kevin Feige. And so somebody actually directly asked Kevin Feige about Bob Chapek. And I don't know what they're expecting him to say. Bob Chapek is his boss. What is Kevin Feige supposed to say? But Kevin Feige did give a response and it wasn't exactly glowing. And and talking about Bob Chapek, he says, uh, I think he's a creative guy, a nice guy. Uh, He's a real guy. Just enough of an opinion to give good feedback. That's it. Now, obviously, Kevin Feige cannot sit there and talk crap about his boss. He can't say anything bad. I'm not necessarily, and I'm not sitting here suggesting that if he were allowed to be completely almost and open and honest and vulnerable, he would have talked mad shit about Bob Chapek. I'm not saying that, but I am saying you ask a guy directly about his boss, the guy who signs his paychecks, the guy who signs the budgets for his movies. And all Kevin Feiger, like when you hear people talking about Bob Iger, right? The people at Disney are like, such a visionary. I'd follow that. Like, I remember listening to one Disney exec say, I'd follow him talking about Bob Iger saying, I'd follow him to hell and back. It's inspiring to be under this guy. Blah, blah, blah. All that Kevin Feige could muster is, I think he's a creative guy. Uh, he's a nice guy. He's a real guy. I think he's a creative guy. He's a nice guy. He's a real guy. He's a real guy. Put that on your poster. He's a real Bob Chapek. He's a real guy. And that seems to be the most that Kevin Feige could muster. Anyway, it's a really great article. And and by the way, let me also remind people of this. I've said this before on the show, but it does bear repeating. I think something all of us need to keep in mind about Bob Chapek's ascension to the CEO ship of Disney is this, is he took over the company under ridiculously difficult circumstances. Okay. Let's not pretend like he didn't. All right. He came in and took over the CEO chair when effectively the entire company had to be shut down. Right. Movie theaters were closed. No movies were being made because, you know, all the movie sets had to be shut down because of COVID. The movie theaters were done, so their finished movies couldn't be in theaters. The theme parks were done. Disneyland was down. Yeah, the Disney World was down. Their parks were shut down. The movie theaters were shut down. Their production was shut down. Listen, I can't imagine a more difficult scenario and a more challenging situation for a guy like Bob Chapek, a new CEO of a company like Disney, to step in and take over. It was ridiculously difficult circumstances. And I think Bob Chapek needs to be credited that. I really do. I also think that just because somebody starts off at a job badly doesn't mean they can't learn lessons, adapt, change, and move forward in a different direction. And so I, 
as an individual fan and a Disney fan. I will continue to cheer for Bob Chapek. I will continue to hope for the best. I will continue to believe that he will recognize mistakes that he's making. He'll use his data, his data-driven mentality to see after another couple of years that, oh, look at this. Like, he's going to look at the results of Shang-Chi and say, oh, wow, now the data is telling us this works. Like, I still am going to have a certain degree of faith in Bob Chapek that he can turn this around. But you can't turn a blind eye to the fact that he has done some very significant damage to Disney. Damage that won't show for years to come. Whenever there's a big regime change, I was talking to some people on Twitter about this who just don't seem to get it. To really see the impact and effect of a regime change, it doesn't happen overnight. You don't see the impact of it overnight. Because by the way, Bob Iger is still there. He is still the executive chairman of Disney. It usually takes a couple of years to really see the impact. But my fear as an individual fan, as uh, as somebody who really loves Disney's content, my fear is that we will see in a couple of years the negative ramifications of creative people being pushed out of the way, of creative executives being shown the door, of data-driven people being placed in charge of creative decisions. I fear that in a couple of years, we are really going to see the impact of that. We won't see it right away, but I'm afraid of that. That's my fear. That's my anxiety. That's my paranoia. And uh, hopefully it won't come to that. Hopefully it won't, but that's uh, kind of where I see things being right now. Anyway, guys, um, that's kind of my take on that, on the Hollywood Reporter article and why I think it's so significant. The question is for you, what do you think about this? I mean, do, do you see... The problem that I see, maybe you don't see it as big of an issue as I see. Maybe you've got some rationale and some reasons for why I'm a little too worried about this. Maybe you think I'm not worried enough. Maybe you think I should be slamming that damn can't be a panic button. I mean, I don't know. Uh, Listen, obviously this one is being done in podcast form, so there's no podcast section, but my Twitter is obviously at John Campia. If you've got a thought on this, please tweet to me. Just tweet to me at John Campia. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. So go on down and leave me your thoughts. Um, Now, listen, guys, there are a couple of other big things that have happened today. For instance, um, a variety is reporting that Catherine Hahn, is getting a WandaVision spinoff series. That's huge. An Agatha spinoff series? Are you kidding me? That, there's a new Dune trailer, a number of things. We're going to save that stuff for the John Campy Show tomorrow when hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be back up on the YouTube channel. But I just want to point out that those, those stories are out there and we'll talk about those tomorrow. So don't worry, we're not ignoring those stories. We're just going to wait till we're back up on the YouTube channel for them. All right, with that down, guys, let's now move over and start taking your live comments and questions. Once again, if you want to get a comment or question read on the show, simply go down to the description of this podcast and click on that tip link, or you could enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be helping out the show and supporting the show, and of course, you'll be getting your comment or question read on this show or an upcoming show if it's, of course, a appropriate to be read and appropriate for our show. That is. All right, let's get on over to, we've got a whole bunch of them that have already been sent in. So let's get to it. A spy Admiral Ozzel was writes in, 
Hey, John and Rob, Aaron, and perhaps other. Of course, it's just me here today. Which 1980s comedy do you think should be remade as dark and gritty drama? My vote is Back to the Future. Think about it. There is some really dark stuff in that movie. Well, I mean, that's an interesting take. The idea of taking some kind of comedy, convert it into something deep and dark. And yes, Back to the Future can be. You could do that as a gritty, dark story. A guy who's get accidentally gets involved with international terrorists who are trying to develop nuclear weapons, then using that material to try to literally create a time machine. But in his misguided uh, attempts at it, he inadvertently sends a young guy, a high school student, into the past where he is faced with the threat of his own annihilation. I mean, you could do that. Absolutely, you can. You can do it just about any comedy. Now, I don't walk around with a list of 80s comedies off the top of my head, so I can't pick one out, but it's a really fun exercise to do, Admiral Ozzel. All right, next up, an anonymous viewer writes, Dumb question, I know, but do you think we will get a Venom 3? And if so, when do you think it will happen? Will it be a long while or soon? I mean, there's absolutely going to be a Venom 3. There's no doubt about it. I mean, just look, Venom 2 just made more money on its opening weekend in a pandemic era than Venom 1 did. They made $90 million opening weekend. More than a Fast and the Furious movie, more than two Marvel movies in this same era, and it made $90 million. It is the second biggest opening of any movie in October in history, other than Joker from 2019. Joker made about $6 million more. But those are the two biggest October openings in history, and that's in a pandemic era. So yeah, now, how long we'll have to wait? It all depends on what their planning their planning stages are, but I'm willing to bet not long. I bet... I I would guess, not bet, I would guess that we will have another Venom in theaters by the end of 2024. That'll be my guess, by the end of 2024. So there you go. All right, next up, we've got Dude Meister who writes, one of two, still feel like a shame that the main thing our discuss is page, let me try this again, still feel like a shame that the main thing our discuss is Platt's age. I, I'm assuming you're talking about uh, Ben Platt from um, uh, Dear Evan Hansen. On a personal level, I love the songs in Dear Evan Hansen and believe that these songs are collectively better than the songs from The Greatest Showman. Ooh, I very much disagree with you, Dude Meister, but that's okay. It's all subjective. Uh, two of two. Since I saw the movie last week, I've been listening to the album on repeat, both Broadway and music and, uh, and movie, and I love it. Yeah, listen, I I've listened to a number of the songs from Dear Evan Hansen, and they're really good songs. And and as much as as much criticism as Ben Platt takes for the age thing, obviously, he, there's no denying this dude's voice. This dude is a ridiculously phenomenally great singer. He really is. You cannot take that away from him. Now, I still think not only is the songs in The Greatest Showman better, I think they're significantly better. Like, I think they're in a completely different league. But, you know, your opinion on that is no less or no more valid than my opinion. So, hey, we can all have different tastes for that. That's totally good. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that, dude, Meister. All right. Next up, we got Rick in Texas who writes, Hey, John, 
I'm very curious, with all this talk about the IATSE uh, going on strike, will the Batman be in danger of being held back uh, should the strike become a reality? Or is it safe to say that at this point it's going to be released on time? I have a, f- I mean, look, I don't have a definitive answer to that, honestly, but it seems to me that that movie in particular is far enough along in the process that I think it's pretty much protected. I, I, I think that it's far enough along in the process. And by the way, don't, don't take that to the bank. I might be wrong about this. I could be, but my, my gut feeling is that this is a movie that's far enough along the process that its release date is probably secure. So I don't think there's any danger of it missing its release date at this point. All right, next up, we got Joe Hill who writes, are you watching the Contender series? I'm actually not. Uh, some of the best fights of the year, my man. Honestly, I think UFC has surpassed my love of movies in the last year. I can't get enough. Anyways, I won 650 bucks tonight betting on the fights tonight. So here's some love. Yeah, listen. So Dana White's Contender series, they're signing a lot of new guys to the UFC through it. And I've seen some great highlights from it. But honestly, I don't watch it. And I don't know why I don't watch it, but I don't. Like, I also don't watch The Ultimate Fighter. Um, which is of course the, the house reality show for UFC. I don't want, I, I haven't watched the ultimate fighter in like five years, six years, seven, maybe more. I don't know. Anyway, it's been a while. I watch every UFC, but no, I don't watch the contender series and, uh, maybe I should start, man. Maybe I should start. All right. Next up, Alex Von Gollum writes one of two. Hi, Masters Geo and Rob, and obviously Rob's not here today. In one of the No Time to Die trailers, Bond says, if we don't do this, there will be nothing left to save. In previous movies, he is usually kind of playful. This time, I get the impression that he is bearing the brunt of the stakes far more than before. Maybe we're in for a deep cut uh, in his character development. If we get something akin to Logan, it would be something very special. Thoughts? Well, I don't know that Logan is the right approach, but listen... If you go back through Bond history, there are many, many, many moments that James Bond clearly shows that he understands the heaviness of the situation, right? Yes, he's often like Spider-Man with a quick wit and all that kind of stuff, but he's also very serious at times. So that when I saw uh, Daniel Craig, and by the way, I'm going to go see No Time to Die tonight. I'm going to like, once I'm done the podcast here, uh, I got a few things I got to do. And then Ann and I are going to head out a little bit later and go watch No Time to Die. I'm very excited about that. But when I saw Daniel Craig in that trailer say, you know, if we don't do this, you know, if we fail, there's going to be nothing left to save. If we don't do this, there's nothing left to save. That didn't seem out of character to me at all. Now, if the whole movie is him doing that, That'll be different. That that will be out of character for what we've seen from other Bond iterations. But honestly, we've seen moments in Bond from all the different iterations of Bond. There are always been moments like that where the the heaviness, they're cognizant of the heaviness and the weight of the situation. So yeah, it didn't catch me off guard, to be honest with you, Alex. So we'll see. We'll see. All right. Thanks for sending in those thoughts, man. Andrew Gifford writes, but John, Television film are two different divisions within Warner Brothers, so inconsistency in handling the Hartley Sawyer and Ezra Miller makes sense. No, it doesn't. It does not. And I'll tell you exactly why. All right? I will tell you why. Because, now, for those of you who don't know what Andrew is talking about, we spoke the other day, somebody wrote and asking about Ezra Miller. And one of the things I, I, I'm an Ezra Miller fan. I like his iteration of the flash. I really, I like him in the fantastic beast movies. I like Ezra Miller. 
Now, of course, we were talking the other day, and we won't go into it in depth, but the fact that, you know, Warner Brothers, it some old, years-old joke tweets, terribly distasteful joke tweets, mind you. I'm not, I'm not defending them. Terribly untasteful joke tweets. But Harley Sawyer, who played Elongated Man on the Flash TV series, these tweets came up again that he had written years earlier. They were jokes, terribly distasteful jokes, no doubt. But And they fired him immediately. They took his job away. Meanwhile, Ezra Miller was caught on video today. I mean, when it came out, it was today. Today, putting his hands on the throat of a woman taking her to the ground. Now, I, I got a lot of comments from people who still didn't realize that that was, some people were still under the impression that was some kind of joke video or fake video. It's, it wasn't. It was absolutely verified and confirmed by Variety. It was very, very real. Ezra Miller's put his hands on a woman's throat and took her down to the ground. And Warner Brothers didn't even talk about it. They didn't say, hey, you know, we're very disappointed in, in what we saw Ezra. We expect better from him in the future. We've sat down with Ezra. We've let him know we expect better from him in the future and blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying they should have fired Ezra, but I just said I find great hypocrisy in the fact that a five-year-old tweet came out and one guy got instantly fired. Another guy gets caught on video putting his hands on the throat of a woman and taking her to the ground and not even acknowledging it. And I said there is massive hypocrisy there. Now, Andrew Gifford is saying something that I've heard several people say to me, but they're completely wrong. You know, just to re reiterate, here's what Andrew just wrote. But John, television and film are two different divisions within WB. So inconsistency handling Hartley Sawyer and Ezra Miller makes sense. No, it does not. Because you know what happened in Disney? Here's an example. When the James Gunn tweet situation happened... It didn't just go to Kevin Feige. It went up the chain from Kevin Feige to Alan Horn. And then it went up the chain from Alan Horn to Bob Iger. Now, Alan Horn is the one who made the decision, but he got, he had to get Bob in, in something that was as big and as public as that. He had to get Bob Iger's approval. Bob Iger basically said, look, Alan, this is your division. You make the decision. And I was very critical of Alan Horn's decision. The man's a genius, but I, I was critical of Alan Horn's decision. And they eventually worked it out anyway. But they had to ultimately go up the rung to nobody less than Bob Iger himself, the CEO and chairman of the board, Big Papa Iger himself. You cannot tell me, you cannot tell me that something as publicly defacing as this did not have to run up the chain. Of course it did. It absolutely did. That organization is in worse shape than I thought if it didn't run up the chain. Of course it had to run up the chain. It 100% did. So, yes, it, it's fine and well to say, well, you know, it's two different divisions. Make no mistake about that. When it's something as public as that, it had to run up the chain. It did at Disney. I absolutely guarantee you that it did at Warner Brothers as well. So, yeah, there's that. All right. Anyway, next up, Joe Hill writes, by the way, you working out, John? Them traps looking bulky as hell in the in the Henley. What's a Henley? Anyway, uh, good work, my guy. While I'm here, Loki's theme song should be Joker and the Thief by a wolf mother. Uh, and after years, I finally have to ask, where did the filthy come from? Well, that question gets asked all the time. Uh, long story short, I was doing a, a companion video, a mailbag episode 
way back in the day when 50 shades of gray was coming out. I mentioned about, we were talking about whether it should be getting an NC 17 rating or an R rating. And we were talking about how filthy it would be. And I said, no, don't get me wrong. I love the filthy bring on the filthy. And ever since I said that it totally caught on, it totally caught on. Now, as far as Joker and the thief is I forgive me, I'm not familiar with wolf mother. Um, so is, is that the same one as all along the watchtower? There must be some way out of here, said the Joker to the thief. I mean, I don't know if it's the same song or not. I have no idea. You too did a cover of that song as well. But if it's the same song, that would be a pretty good one too. All right, next up, Jack Lumbers writes, one of two. In terms of public recognition, where each one were the MCU trinity, let me try this again. In terms of public recognition, where each one were the MCU trinity, Thor, Iron Man, and Captain America, in 2008 before Iron Man 1. Batman, Superman, Spider-Man level, where most people recognize and know their story. I have no idea what you're writing here, Jack. I have no, like, anyway, two of two. Flash, John Constantine, Aquaman, Hulk level, where people may recognize but can't tell anything about the character besides maybe basic power. Or Captain Adam, Lightning Lad, or Wildcat, where most people... Uh, without basic comic book knowledge may not know. I, I, I'll be honest with you, Jack. I'm looking it over. I have no idea what you're asking. I have, I'm, I apologize for that, man. I have, but I have no clue what it is you're asking here. So I got to move on my apologies. But again, I, I just don't know what it is you're asking. Sorry about that, man. Guys, remember when you do write in, please read over what you're writing in and read it as if you're somebody totally brand new looking at it for the first time, because I, I just, I'm not able to figure out what it is you're asking. Anyway, uh, Jack Lembers follows it up with another question. He writes in, with Venom and Shang-Chi opening figure now as reference, if there was no day and date release on HBO Max, how high would you estimate Suicide Squad Suicide Squad's opening being? It's impossible to say because, so what Jack is asking, okay, now that we know what Venom made opening weekend, it made $90 million. And now that we know what Shang-Chi made opening weekend, it made uh, $75 million. How much would the Suicide Squad, uh, and I'm just going to bring up uh, the box office mojo numbers here for this because I can't remember exactly how much it made opening weekend. I believe it was like 20-something. Yeah, it made $26 million. Okay, so what Jack is asking, with Venom making $90 million opening and Shang-Chi making $75 million opening, and the big difference is that Suicide Squad went on HBO Max at the same time that it went into theaters. How much money would Suicide Squad have made opening weekend if it didn't get an HBO Max release? It's impossible to say because here's the thing. The HBO Max was not the only thing working against Suicide Squad. Okay? There were a couple of other unique things about it. Number one... The Venom movie was pretty much beloved by audiences. I mean, there's a bunch of people who didn't like it, but a lot of people like that movie. And that's why it made over $800 million and people were ready to come flocking back. Um, Shang-Chi, this was the first one. The first Suicide Squad movie, a lot of people did not like the first one. I did, personally. Personally, I like David Ayer's Suicide Squad. I do. I know it's a hot mess of a movie. I, I totally acknowledge that it is, but I still had a lot of fun with it. So take that for what it's worth. But so it had a huge amount of baggage, a huge amount of baggage being dragged along with it. On top of that, 
it was a sequel, sort of, without most of the main characters from the first movie. That is a big strike against it. That makes it very difficult. On top of that, it had no discernible stars. Now, you could say that a little bit as well about Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi, I mean, yes, um, there, you know, Tony Leung is a big star internationally, but North American audiences don't really know who he is. So that was there too. But anyway, the bottom line is this. The HBO Max thing was not the only thing working against Suicide Squad. Clearly, Suicide Squad's opening weekend would have been bigger had it not gotten a day and date release on HBO Max, obviously. But it's impossible for me to put a number on it because there were other things working against it as well. Not to mention it was R-rated. The Suicide Squad was R-rated. Venom Let There Be Carnage and Shang-Chi were not R-rated. That definitely is another big factor. So there's not just one factor there. It's a good question, but again, since it's not just a one-factor issue, it's difficult to answer. All right, but thanks for writing that in too anyway, Jack. Next up. Alex Von Gollum writes, John, do you watch Casino Royale to get ready for the World Series of Poker? <laughs> Which demeanor technique did you use? The Lashif or Bonds? Uh, just kidding. Seems you had a blast in Vegas. I did have a blast in Vegas. For those of you who don't know, I went and played in the World Series of Poker this past weekend. Uh, I do go and play every year. Uh, it's an absolute blast for me. I did very well in the tournament. Like the tournament I played in was event number four. It was a $5 million tournament. Um, I, and the buy-in was $500. Now the main event, the main event at the world series of poker, that's a $10,000 buy-in. You got to put up $10,000 to get into that tournament and like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people enter it. But, uh, this one was only $500 buy-in and I did very well. I, I got into the top 40%. Uh, I lasted about eight hours and then got knocked out. Now, unfortunately, to cash or to finish high enough to actually make money, you had to finish in the top 15%. And uh, so I did well. I lasted a long time. I was playing against some of the greatest poker players in the world. I'm very proud that I got into the top 40%. But what was really cool was I then used the rest of my weekend there. I went to the Wynn which is a big hotel resort there in in Las Vegas. I went to the win on the street, on the strip, I should say. And I played a cash game. I played a two, five cash game. And I ended, I ended up winning over $3,000, which is probably my single best Vegas. I play poker in Vegas about six times a year. It was probably my single biggest Vegas winning ever was winning about three grand. Now that's small potatoes. Like some people will go and make 50 grand on a weekend. That's great. Not me, but I made about three grand playing poker uh, at the win. So not bad. It was pretty good. All right. Thanks for that, Alex. All right. Next up, Alan Schroederer writes, Hey, John and Rob, and obviously Rob's not here. Love the show. Thank you so much. With the Ted Lasso season finale coming this week, I'm so excited for it. I was wondering what other shows you enjoy watching on Apple TV+. Plus. I am personally loving The Morning Show and Foundation. Thanks, and keep up the great work. Yeah, I, I'm really enjoying Foundation as well. Finally got caught up. Uh, the Morning Show was a revelation to me. Because I'm going to be honest with you, when they first started advertising The Morning Show, um, a number one, didn't look all that good. And number two, certainly didn't look like it was a show for me. You know what I'm saying? As I take a sip of my drink here. So I didn't think it looked that good. And it didn't look like it was for me. So imagine my surprise 
when I was at the gym one day on the treadmill, when I, when I go to the gym, I bring a tablet with me. I bring like my iPad with me and I mount it up on the treadmill and I'll watch stuff as I'm on the treadmill. I thought, you know what? I might as well watch this morning show, see what everybody's talking about. So imagine my surprise when I got hooked. It's really good. It's really good. Uh, Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston, uh, Steve Carell. It's just a really good show. So there's that foundation, obviously, Ted Lasso, yes. But the other one that you absolutely, absolutely, absolutely must watch is For All Mankind. Uh, My brother-in-law, Ray, got me hooked on that one. And it's phenomenal. If you haven't checked it out yet, do check it out. It's really damn good. All right, thanks for that, Alan. All right, next up, Dangerous D writes, Hey, John, have you seen the trailer for House of the Dragon, uh, the prequel to Game of Thrones? It looks like it will center on the Targaryen 200 years before the fall of the throne. The trailer looks good, but do you think it will be as successful and generate the buzz like Game of Thrones? Well, I mean, first of all, yes, I did see the trailer. We talked about it on the John Campus show yesterday, as a matter of fact. I I thought the trailer was very good. But... I'm going to be honest with you, Dangerous. I don't like questions that are like, can it be as big as the biggest thing ever? It's like whenever a movie about mobsters comes out and people, the first question people ask, is it as good as The Godfather? Well, let's not worry about that. The Game of Thrones is arguably the most successful show of all time. It holds all the Emmy records. It's won more Emmys than any show in history. Uh, It was an absolute cultural phenomenon. Like everybody was talking about Game of Thrones. It it's insane. So to ask the question, can it be as big as that? Well, let's let's not make that the question. Let's ask the question, can it be successful? And I think it absolutely can be successful. And Matt Smith looks great in it. He sounds great in it. I thought the tone, and now granted it was just a one-minute sizzle, but I thought the tone of it felt great. I think this thing's gonna be a hit. Now again, as big as Game of Thrones, that's that's like any TV show coming out. Can it be the biggest television show ever in history and the most successful television show in history? It's a little much to ask, but can it be really successful? I think it absolutely can. All right, next up. Dangerous D also writes, Hey, John, have you seen an episode of uh, Cinefix, a YouTube channel where they did an episode about how samurai films were responsible for for Star Wars. Well, that's not true. Uh, it's seven plus minutes, but it gives a lot of info like how Jedi was created. Samurai armor inspired Darth Vader. It's good. Well, I've, I've not heard of the YouTube channel, but I will say this. When I've read, obviously, a lot of history on George Lucas, the formation of Star Wars and all kind of stuff. The reality is there's a lot of influences. I've seen a lot of articles and podcasts and things like that, but saying this is what's responsible for Star Wars. And that's what's responsible for Star Wars. And this is what's responsible. But the reality is there is a collection of things. George Lucas was inspired by a lot of stuff. The samurai stuff, absolutely. Flash Gordon, absolutely. His love of cars was actually, you have to go into it a little bit, but you find out that George Lucas had this obsession with cars, and which is why he made... Um, uh, American, oh, why am I forgetting the name of the big George Lucas movie? Uh, wait a second, it's, uh, it's coming, American Graffiti, that's what it is. Um, American Graffiti, which by the way, had like Ron Howard in it, had Harrison Ford. Anyway, uh, by the way, a lot of you guys have not seen American Graffiti. Uh, it was George Lucas before Star Wars. You should watch it. It's great. Anyway, um, 
George Lucas's passion for cars had a direct influence on the creation of Star Wars. So there was actually, and there were many other things. His political beliefs were one of the main things behind Star Wars. Uh, a lot of people don't understand this or forget this. The original Star Wars films were very, very, very political. They were very political. Uh, all you got to do is read a lot of, uh, you know, George Lucas stuff around the era when he was making it. But anyway, so yeah, there's a lot of different influences that went into it. And, but that is definitely one of them. That's definitely one of them. All right. From Planet Houston writes, Hey, John. I watched Free Guy in theater and really liked it. The concept of virtual reality and artificial intelligent life with tangible relationships fascinated me. It reminded me of the Truman Show. Don't have a good day, John. Have a great day, which is one of the sayings from uh, from Free Guy. Uh, yeah, guys, you, you've heard me sing the song about Free Guy. Free Guy is awesome. You got to check it out. What Sean Levy and Ryan Reynolds have brought to the screen is absolutely delightful and fantastic. If you haven't seen Free Guy, you must. If you want another good comparison, though, if you want to talk about the concept of virtual reality and its tangible relationships with actual physical people, there is a Joaquin Phoenix uh, movie with Scarlett Johansson, or at least does the voice, called Her, which is about a guy being in love with an AI. It's it's also a really good compare. I mean, very very different movie from Free Guy. It's a very different. Don't don't confuse what I'm saying. I'm not saying her and Free Guy are practically the same movie, but I'm saying if that sort of a theme appeals to you, uh, you might want to check out her. It's a good one. All right, next up, just your average Jose writes. Venom two was okay. My opinion, the box office success is a testament of the Marvel brand. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, whether it an MCU movie or not. Plus, the public's enthusiasm of returning to the movies. Before pandemic, I wouldn't have watched it in theater. I did not see the first one in theater. I, I think I, I can't agree with you on that. Just your average show. I think I partially agree with your one sentiment there about the audience wanting to get back to the movie theaters. I partially agree with that. That is definitely a part of it for sure. Um, it doesn't explain why Suicide Squad flopped so hard because, I mean, it was in theaters, right? And it flopped very, very hard. Also, the reality is the vast majority of the movie-going audience has no idea who Venom is. They just don't. <clears throat> they They don't know who he is. So... I don't think there's a Marvel association there. There's certainly a Marvel association for those of us like you and me who watch shows like the John Campia show or read websites like cinema blend or coming soon or Joe blow or variety. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For, for those, for those of us. Yeah. We know that we know there's an association there, but I also think a lot of people don't. So no, I, I disagree. If it was just Marvel brand association, then you know, Shang-Chi should have opened to 120 million. Black Widow should have opened to 120 million. But but the the whole idea about it partially also being because of people wanting to get back to the theaters. I agree with that. I think that's part of it. But you also cannot dismiss the fact that tons of people really enjoyed the first Venom. Regardless of the critic score of the first Venom, which was abysmal, the audience rating of the first Venom was 80%. And I constantly had people writing into me saying how much fun they had. I was shocked with how much fun it is. And I think people are underestimating how much people enjoyed the first Venom and were looking forward to coming back to seeing him again. And I think that is the main thing. That's the main thing. 
Other factors, absolutely. But I think that one is the main thing. Okay, anyway, thanks for writing that in, Just Your Average Jose. I love that username, by the way. All right, Willow writes, the story about your Vegas trip reminded me of an embarrassing time that when I pulled my back, but went to work anyways, I went to use the washroom and I couldn't get up from the toilet for 15 minutes. I was panicking since I really didn't want to call for help. I love that story, Willow. That is great. Now, for those of you who don't know, the reason Willow's bringing that up is... Uh, when I was in Vegas this past weekend, for those of you who missed the show before, um, when I played poker at the win, what I didn't mention today, but I did mention the other day, was that I played for 24 hours straight. You didn't mishear me. I played for 24 hours straight, a little more than 24 hours, actually. I got there on Saturday night around 8 p.m., if I'm remembering correctly, and I got up and left somewhere around 8.30 p.m., on Sunday. But the thing is sitting in a badly designed poker chair for 24 hours turns out is not very good for your back. <laughs> and by the time I got back to my hotel room and laid down for a minute, my entire back seized and I couldn't move. I literally I couldn't move. I tried to nudge my shoulder, sharp spiking pain through my whole back. It took me 10 minutes just to kind of nudge myself to the edge of the bed to let gravity slither me down off the bed onto the floor. And then about another 10 minutes just to get to my feet. It was awful. It was absolutely awful. And I felt about 50% better the next day. And then I felt better the next day. And today, perfect. Like yesterday, my back was still a little bit sore. Today, I'm perfectly good. 100% today. But yeah, uh, mental note to self, never play for 24 hours straight again. Uh, unless I can play standing up, I should probably play standing up, but Willow, oh my God, I can just imagine that. Like you're on the toilet. You're like, I can't call for help. This is totally embarrassing. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Willow. appreciate that. All right. Donda writes top five worst of 2021. So far five space jams, pretty bad. Uh, four snake eyes, horrible. Number three, Sweet Girl, horrible. That's the Jason Momoa one, for those of you who don't know. Number two, Spiral. I didn't, I finally got around to Spiral. I didn't think Spiral was total garbage. It wasn't good. It's, I'm not saying it was good. It was not good, but I didn't think it was quite as bad as some people made out. Anyway, number one, Tom and Jerry. Yeah, Tom and Jerry was just awful. Um, uh, honorable mention, Fast 9, Mortal Kombat, Little Things. I didn't mind Mortal Kombat. Uh, little Things coming to America. Also, thanks for watching Thunder Force for us so we don't have to. I was about to say, Donda, why are you not mentioning Thunder Force? That is easily the worst film of the year. Um, thank you for watching Thunder Force for us so we don't have to. You took a huge bullet for us, Sean. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I mean, it's almost like I have, like, post-traumatic stress when I think about Thunder Force. Not that I'm trying to underplay the severity and the reality of post-traumatic stress. Please, I'm just, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. But yeah, man, I get the shivers just remembering back and thinking about, oh, Thunder Force, so bad. And I was kind of excited for it. I was kind of looking forward to that movie anyway. All right, let's move on here. All right, uh, our friend Marie Seifring writes in. Hey, John and crew, following up on a question from the last dark, uh, the last after dark companion video, what do you think of behind blue eyes as a theme song for Loki? Love the show. And thank you. Ah, oh, Marie, I would love to answer that question. I really would. 
But I got to admit to you, I do not know what the song Behind Blue Eyes is. Maybe if you were able to hum a few bars for me, I would know it, but I don't. You know, it's funny. Somebody wrote in and says, I think you should, what was it, Sympathy for the Devil? I think somebody wrote in and said, Sympathy for the Devil should be uh, Loki's theme song if the immigrant song is the kind of the theme song for Thor. And then everybody's been writing in their suggestions for Loki's theme song. Uh, unfortunately... I'm not really familiar with what behind blue eyes are. Sorry. I'm right now. Everybody's yelling at their, at their computer. John, how can you not know what that song is? Maybe if I heard a few bars being hummed, I would know, but honestly, I don't know. Okay. Next up. J- Dangerous D writes, Hey John, I'm curious. Have you and Ann ever been to a Jollibee rest? Oh, come on. Ann's Filipino. Of course we've been to Jollibee. Jollibee is a huge, 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 for those of you who don't know what Jollibee is, and, and if you're not Filipino, maybe you wouldn't, but Jollibee is this big, like, basically it's like a Filipino McDonald's, only it's really good, it's really, really good, anyway, uh, have you ever been to a Jollibee restaurant, I think there's a franchise there in LA, they have a good chicken recipe and a yum burger, they're slowly becoming a competitor to McDonald's, have you heard of this Filipino franchise, oh yeah, we, we've ordered, we've ordered Jollibee many, 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 many times, actually, when we would have our big role-playing game nights, whether it's our D&D nights or uh, sometimes we play other games as well, uh, we would often just order a bunch of Jollibee to get uh, delivered. It's delicious. We love Jollibee. Uh, so there you go. All right, next up. Payne141 writes, one of two. I enjoyed What If, but it is the worst thing the MCU has put out, in my opinion, and I don't see them using anything from the show going forward in the MCU, but I think we may have been given some interesting info from the show that may be something of note. And um, in the Star-Lord episode, the Collector pulls out Hela's helmet and refers to it as the Necrosword, which is what Gore the God Butcher's weapon was called. Any chance this could be relevant? Um, I don't know that it's relevant, but okay, let me, how do I say this? I don't think it's relevant in the sense that it's going to be referenced, but it could be something that is used in Thor four. So we could see Christian Bale's Gore, the God bitcher, bitcher is bit. I'm the God bitcher. Um, the God butcher, butcher, the God butcher, uh, wielding the Necrosword, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's relevance to the fact that it happened to get name dropped as well in that episode. Yeah. I, I just watched the finale of what if I was, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't like it. There are a few episodes I thought were quite good. The Hank Pym kills the Avengers episode. I thought was great. The Doctor Strange episode was fantastic. I also liked that T'Challa as Star-Lord episode I did. But for the most part, I just felt, well, that's 20 minutes I'll never get back when I watched it. So I don't know. But that's just me. A lot of you guys love it, and I'm not taking anything away. I'm not crapping on it. I'm just saying it didn't, you know, didn't really do it for me. That's all. A couple of episodes did, but not overall. All right. Last question today. You guys can hear my voices breaking up. Uh, Last question today comes to us from Teddy Roosevelt, who writes, don't get me wrong, I really liked Venom, but do you think the post credit scene in Venom 2 was the part responsible for their big box office numbers? Not at all. Zero. Uh, I was in shock when I saw it, and I bet fans rewatched it just to see the post credit scene again. Thoughts? No, absolutely zero. Because okay, first of all, you got to understand, once again, people like you and me who watch or listen to shows like this one, or people like you and me who read websites like 
Cinema Blend or Coming Soon or Joe Blow. Like we knew there was a big post credit scene, a shocking post credit scene. Some of us even knew what it was because of spoilers. Thank you, assholes. Um, but 95% of the movie going audience does not follow movie Twitter channels, does not watch the John Campius show, does not read websites like Cinema Blend and Joe Blow. 95% of the audience don't do that, and they had no idea. And a great illustration of this was, you know, when I went to go see Venom for the second time, Venom 2 for the second time, it was on opening night, Anne and I were there. And when the post credit scene happened, the audience, you can tell, the audience was legitimately shocked. And I'm not going to say what it was, but the audience was clearly legitimately shocked. They had never heard of this. They had no idea this was going to be there. And as far as going back, well, that might explain, Teddy, like people going back just to watch the postcard scene, that might explain why it does well in its second weekend, but not really its first. Not many people come out of the theater, immediately buy a ticket to the next show and turn around and walk back into the theater. That's extremely rare. So, no. To be honest with you, I don't think the post credit scene had anything to do with it. None. Because 95% of the eyes didn't even know there was one. So, yeah, I would say no. It it Listen, everybody's trying to come up with an excuse for why Venom 2 did so well. It did so well because it looked fun and that the uh, most of the average movie-going audience that went to go see the first Venom had a very, very good time and they wanted to come back and see him again. It's that simple. I know people don't want to acknowledge that, especially people who didn't like the first Venom. People don't want to acknowledge that, but that's that's the truth. That's why it was tracking high. The trailers looked like fun, and people had a good time watching the first one. Not everybody, obviously. All film is subjective, but I mean, that's just the bottom line. That's That's what it was. Anyway, guys, that'll do it. For today's episode of the John Campius Show, one that is exclusively being done in the podcast format. Again, uh, thank you to all you guys who are regular podcast listeners and you subscribe to the podcast feed. Hey, for those of you who are just tuning in to the podcast for the first time because there's not a video version today, why not subscribe to the to the um, uh, podcast feed as well? That way, when you need the audio-only version because you can't be in front of a YouTube video. Maybe you're commuting or you're at work or you're at school or whatever. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast feed so the audio-only version is there when you need it. Anyway, listen, guys, big thank you to all of you who sent in those uh, live comments and questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you also supported this channel as you did. And all of us involved with the John Campia Show, both the video and the podcast versions, thank you guys very, very much for your support. And don't forget guys, if you want to send in a comment or question to be read on an upcoming show, once again, go down into the description of this podcast, or you can enter in the website manually. Just look for that link, www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. Once again, you're getting your comment or question read on the show if it's appropriate for our show. And of course you're supporting our channel at the same time. So anyway, guys, that'll do for me for now. Thanks a lot for being here. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.